Well, you can see from the title of the sermon this morning that I'd like to consider the subject of pride with you. I imagine that's not a subject that's going to fill churches, but that's one of the advantages of preaching through scriptures like this, is that you come to passages like this one, which sets before us in a living example of pride and the, uh, the punishment that God brought down upon this uh, sin of pride. Now, my friends, you know that it's unique to human beings. As I say in the introduction there, it's unique to human beings that we have this ability to, as it, as it were, to step out of ourselves and to turn and look at ourselves, to examine ourselves. This is not something that animals do of any kind, but this is something unique to humans. We have this ability to step out of ourselves and to look back, to examine ourselves, to search ourselves. We can look within our own heart and with our own soul, and we can put ourselves to the test. And this is something that Scripture often calls us to do. It's not often a a pleasant task, but Scripture does often call us to do this, and it's something that we hope to do this morning. Now, I have to say that in many Christian circles, this is something that is, is deeply frowned upon. Uh, sometimes even in our, in our own Reformed circles, you, you hear a, a, a real resistance to looking within ourselves. The thought is given us that we should look outside of ourselves. Is that true? Right? That we should look outside of ourselves. That looking within ourselves, we, we find sin and evil. It's by looking without ourselves that we find salvation. Now, of course, that is true, isn't it? That is true. This is, I put these four things, these are four objections that people make to looking within ourselves, right? And the first one is that we should look outside of ourselves for salvation. So we grant this. This is certainly a true thing. But my friends, having been saved, having looked without ourselves to Jesus Christ and found our salvation in him, is it true that in Scripture God calls us then to turn around and look within ourselves on occasion? Not always. But on occasion that God calls us to look within our own hearts, to examine ourselves. One good preacher said that for every one look that we take within ourselves, we should take ten looks outside of ourselves to Christ. And that's certainly a wonderful uh, truth, isn't it? That the priority should always be looking outside of ourselves and finding our life in Christ. But for all that, there are plenty of scriptures, and especially the one also this, uh, this morning, that teach us to look within ourselves. Now the second thing, people will say, well, we don't find power for living for God. We don't find power for sanctification by looking within ourselves. And again, this is so true, isn't it? How do we fight against sin in our lives? Well, we don't find power for doing that. We don't find strength to win that battle by looking within ourselves. We find that strength by looking outside of ourselves, don't we? That's how we find power for living and for fighting against sin. But again, as true as that is, as true as that is, we also need to look within ourselves. So the one, those are not mutually exclusive, are they? We find power for fighting against sin by looking without ourselves to Christ. 
But for all that, we still need to look within our own hearts and to pull out those weeds that we find growing in our own soul, those vices, those sins that need to be removed. In the third place, people will say, well, it's not pleasant to look within my own soul. I don't find that that is a pleasant exercise. And of course it's not, is it? We find within ourselves many sins, even after we've received the grace of God in our life. There remain sins within our own soul that cause us distress. They break our communion with God. And because of that, it's very unpleasant to look within. Well, it is unpleasant. We don't see the progress we would like to see in our soul, in our progress of sanctification. Although, let me just say, my friends, sometimes we do see progress, don't we? I know that might, sound, that might not sound so sanctified to say that, but don't we see progress in our life? Can't we look back at what we once were? And look at what we now are today and say, yes, by the grace of God, I see progress there. You might not see the progress, the amount of progress you want to see. But should we not give God thank, uh, gratitude and thanksgiving for the progress that he has done in our souls? And that's not being a humble person to deny that all progress is, that any progress has taken place in our life. I think we need to be honest about that. But for sure, I understand that by looking within ourselves, we don't see the progress that we'd like to see. But my friends, even that progress, or that lack of progress, what does that do? It drives us outside of ourselves again. And that is a happy thing. The sin that we see within our own soul drives us to look outside of ourselves again and to find our life in Christ. I hope, my friends, that will be the effect of the sermon this morning. That when we look within our own souls, we'll see things that are not pleasant, that are not, uh, that are not appropriate, not good. And it will drive us to Christ. The last thing is, is uh, some people will object that using the examples, or I'm sorry, using the, the uh, stories we find in, in the Old Testament especially, but in this case also in the New Testament, that we're not to use these stories as examples for how we're to live morally in our life. I don't know if you've heard this objection. Perhaps you never have, but there are, there are preachers who say that we shouldn't use these men and their life story as given us in Scripture as moral examples for us and how to live. That we should just see them as progress in God's working out of his redemptive plan. For instance, when we have David and Goliath, right? We shouldn't necessarily think, well, we should all be brave like David. We should think, Look at the wonderful victory that God won here, that God's redemptive plan is moving on, right? And that even Goliath could not stand in the way of it. And God won the victory over Goliath. And so God's plan is not frustrated. It's not derailed. It continues on. Now again, right, with all these objections, of course that's the case, isn't it? The primary thing we should see in these stories is that the decree of God is being worked out in history. The seed of the serpent struggling hard against the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman always gains the victory. But again, my friends, for all that, that doesn't mean we can't use these, exa- these stories in the, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as examples for teaching us how to live. By the way, just there, there's a scripture here that I'd like to bring to your attention. You don't have to turn there now, but you can just listen in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians Chapter 10 and verse 6, we find the Apostle Paul explicitly saying what I just said. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6, uh, the, the Apostle Paul is writing about the children of Israel. I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 10, 
in the previous verses, he's writing about the children of Israel as they went through the wilderness. Uh, the rock was there. The water came out of the rock. God was not well pleased with them. Then in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6, Paul writes, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And it goes on. So explicitly, Paul teaches us that yes, those examples are given us, those stories are given us for examples for how not to live and for how to live. And all the while, we certainly recognize that God's redemptive program, if I can say it, is moving ahead on schedule. And the seed of the serpent cannot stop the decree of God from being worked out in history. So all that, my friends, was just an introduction then to prepare us then to receive this story that we have in Acts chapter 12 and to, and to look at this story especially as an example for us of pride and of the, the, the problem that pride presents in our life and God's reaction to it. So we come to this chapter, Acts chapter 12. Now the first thing we can say, my friends, is even historically, apart from scripture, we know that this man Herod loved applause. Now, of course, he loved applause, doesn't every king and every leader? Well, Herod had a special case. Herod never missed an opportunity to take a, an event that happened in his, in his administration and to put it in front of the people and to gather them all. And he did this on multiple different occasions. So that's exactly what we see happening here because he has this dust-up with the people of Tyre and Sidon. The people of Tyre and Sidon uh, were merchants and they had to import all their food. They did not grow their own food. They imported their food, and much of this food came from Palestine. Well, when uh, Herod got very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, he put what we would call sanctions on the people of Tyre and Sidon, and he would no longer allow the food, the grain, to be shipped to Tyre and Sidon. So these people were cut off from their food source. So, uh, having been brought to their knees by these sanctions, they go, and they go to Herod, and it looks like they were even successful in winning over one of these, one of Herod's, uh, this man named Blastus, who would be like Herod's personal assistant, a very uh, high office, by the way, in the administration of Herod. But they came and they asked for peace. They said, Herod, please take away these sanctions. We're sorry. And we're not even told what the, what the problem was, what, why Herod got so angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But Herod, when he sees these ambassadors from Tyre and Sidon come, Ah, there's an opportunity, right? Here's an opportunity to, for me to gain applause. And so he sets up this big event. We're told in the history books that around this time would have been the celebration of Claudius, Emperor Claudius, whether it was his birthday or whether it was his successful campaign in Great Britain, which, which he had just completed. Not sure what it was, but whatever it was, there was this celebration. And so Herod brings these two things together. And he says, let's have these men come and make their appeal to me publicly in the auditorium, right? In the, in the big amphitheaters that the Romans built in those times. And everybody can see this victory that I'm going to gain over these people of Tyre and Sidon. And so the day comes, right? Verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod having put on his royal apparel. Now Josephus, the historian who lived around this time, says that Herod had a, a, a royal robe. And it was woven of silver. It was woven of polished silver. Which, I, again, I, I'm not exactly sure how that would work, but maybe some of you know how that would work. But whatever it was, this, this robe of polished silver would then gleam and shimmer in the sun. 
And so you can imagine in the, in the bright noonday sun, that's, you know, unique to Israel. You know, it's such a, it's a bright, hot climate. Here comes Herod out in this shimmering, gleaming silver garment. Again, assuming that Josephus is right and that that's what he was wearing. It's not hard to see that when the people saw him, their, they, their mouths went open, their breath was taken away. They just couldn't believe what they were seeing. And so that when Herod stood up to give a speech, they cry out, it's the voice of a god. It's the voice of God. They, saw, they thought that Herod was the incarnation of one of their gods. And we have the key expression given us in verse 23. Because he did not give God the glory. Now some of you might ask a question at this point. So why would we expect Herod to give God the glory? He's a, he's a Roman ruler. Well, remember what I said last week, dear friends, and that is, uh, two weeks ago, I guess it would be now, that, that Herod was a, he practiced all the rituals and religion of the Jew. I know that might seem hard to believe, but it's, historically we are told that Herod was a very punctilious Jew. He was scrupulous in all his observance of all the Jewish ceremonies. He went to the temple. Now, I would question in my own mind whether he was really sincere about that. But we are told from the historical records that Herod was a pious, religious Jew. So you might say Herod would have known better. Herod would have known at least what God expects from his people. And so we are told that he was struck down with this terrible sickness because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. And so this proud man became a living example to the crowd there and to us this morning that God that God humbles the proud. My glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 42, verse 8. My glory I will not give to another, says God. And he is humbled. So, my friends, let's think about what pride is then, especially as we see it in this illustration before us. So my, my second point there on the outline, what is Pride. Well, as so many sins begin with something that is true, so does pride. Think hard with me. I know this is going to be a bit uh, technical. I, I want to dissect, as it were, this, this sin, this vice of pride. You know that God has created us as human beings with gifts. We all have different things that we can do, right? It's things that we're good at. But all of us, just as humans, right? have the gift of reason, the gift of speech, and all these different things that God has given us, right? And we love those gifts, and we love the giver of those gifts. And, that we, and we have an, a, an appropriate sense of confidence then in the abilities that God has given us to wake up on Monday morning, to pull on our clothes, and to go about our work. Whether in the home, or in the office, or in the factory, or wherever it may be, going to college, studying. We have a certain amount of confidence in the abilities that God has given us. Call it self-confidence, if you like. And, and, but that confidence is tied intimately with the fact that we know God has given us these gifts. And so we use these gifts in dependence upon and in gratitude to God for these gifts that he's given us. So far, this is all good, isn't it? This is appropriate. This is the way God expects us to live. Now, what is pride? Pride, then, is the 
disordering of that truth. The disordering. Just like cancer. Cancer is just cells replicating, which is a perfectly normal, healthy process, right? But cancer is cell replicating run amok, isn't it? Cells replicating fast and furious with, with, to, the, to, the, to the detriment of the, of the person. Well, now in the same way, this love that we have of the gifts that God has given us and the abilities, the confidence we have, becomes disordered. And how does it become disordered? Because it becomes separated from God. That's why I put on the outline there, pride is a declaration of independence from God. And now you see, my friends, we start to see those, those abilities that we have in a completely different way. Whereas before we had a healthy sense of self-confidence that God had given us these gifts, these abilities, and that we had a confidence in our ability to use them to perform the work or whatever it is that we have to do. Now that God is jettisoned, you might say, God is separated, he's pushed out of the picture, we begin to see those abilities that God has given us as abilities that God has not given us. And we begin to think of ourselves as having these abilities. That when I go to the office, when I go to the shop, when I go to the gym, when I go to school, right? when I go to the pulpit, now I have these abilities and they're mine. God has been pushed out of the picture. And now all sorts of bad things, just like a cancer, all sorts of bad things. That's why the old theologians said that pride is a mother sin, by which they mean to say that it gives birth to children's sins. That pride gives birth to all kinds of other sins. Once we have pushed God out of the picture, we become easily provoked. We, we had a sermon on that, didn't we, recently? We become easily offended, easily provoked. And the least little thing throws us off and makes us angry. That's a, that's a child of pride. Pride leads us to become angry when our will is crossed. Pride leads us, like Herod, to love applause and recognition. And on the flip side, to become very offended if we're not recognized and if we're not noticed. Pride leads us to resent criticism. Even when that criticism is given us in love, pride leads us to insist on our own opinions. Not because we're seeking the truth, but because it's my opinion. Pride leads us to envy, even hate people who are superior to us in some way. Pride leads us to believe that we are entitled to things that are not ours. In each case, my friends, if each of those things I listed, and you could list a million more, I'm sure, you can, you can trace the problem to the fact that God has been separated, we've declared independence from God, and now the abilities, be it, be it just a few abilities, or maybe we're one of those people who are extremely talented in so many different ways, but now they become mine. And I take pride in them. They're mine, and I believe they're superior to yours. We begin to glory in the inferiority of other people. And we begin to love the applause that comes because I have this gift. I have, the, well, we wouldn't think of it as a gift anymore, would we? I have this ability. I have this skill. And I, I, I. You can think of somebody who, somebody who is criticized in some way, right? Now, the person who is joined to God, who, who is still 
closely in covenant with God, as we would say, would receive that criticism in a way that would think, well, maybe there's some truth to this. Maybe I should step back. As we started out the sermon, maybe I should step out of myself, turn around and look at myself and examine myself. Whereas the person who has jettisoned God, who has pushed God out of the picture, sees these skills and abilities as his own, immediately he resents the criticism. Because after all, you're criticizing himself, something that he has, something that he built up. And therefore, he becomes very upset about that. Now, my friends, I want to base this very clearly on the text of Scripture that we have before us. And again, the critical clause given us. Herod was struck by the angel of the Lord. Why? Because he did not give God the glory. Herod, I set him before you, my friends, even in his clothes of silver, shimmering and shining in the sun. But he's a man who I can set before you this morning, who took God and pushed him out of the picture. Yes, he paid lip service. He went through all the rites and ceremonies and rituals of the Jewish religion. He went to synagogue. He went to temple. Well, he wouldn't have gone to synagogue. He would have gone to the temple because he was close enough to Jerusalem. But he did not give God the glory. And therefore, it was his power. It was his victory over those people from Tyre and Sidon. And he wanted the applause of the populace and of the people. I really hope, my friends, you can see today what pride is. That pride is taking all my skills and abilities and pushing God out of the picture. And so the reverse then is humility. And humility is not denying that I have these gifts. Right? Humility isn't denying that I can run the 50-yard dash in however many seconds. and Maybe I can run it faster than you. Right? It's not denying the gifts. That, that's not giving gratitude to God either. Sometimes, sometimes people confuse that humility, right? Now, you might be a, a, a good businessman, right? You might be a straight-A student in calculus. Well, it wouldn't be pride in you to say, well, I, I got a better grade than you in calculus. For sure, not for me at least. Okay? That's not pride. But pride is holding those two things together. My skills, my abilities that God has given me. Well, see how right there I said it, that God has given me, right? And holding them together with God. Humility is keeping the two things together. Pride is pushing them apart. I think if we could keep that in our mind, we have such a clear picture in all these different situations in life where we come to pride. And if we would keep those two things together, because he did not give God the glory. All of us have accomplishments here. As I look out, I mean, I, I know you now, right? And I, I, I can see the accomplishments. I know the successes you've had in business or in, in, your, in your physical life, right? You can bench press 300 pounds and, and all these different things that you can do. And some of you are terrific students and very intelligent and problem solvers and this and that and the next thing, right? But when we keep those things together with God, then we keep humility. And when the two come apart, pride is the result. Now, I have a, a, a thesis. I have a point I want to make in my, in my application here. I, I know this could have gone a lot of different ways. Oh, I have this quote before I move on from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis has such a, a quaint way of saying these things. And if you'll read that with me. From the moment a creature becomes aware of God as God and of itself as self, okay, those are those two things then, the terrible alternative of choosing God 
or choosing self for the center is open to it. This sin is the fall in every individual life and in each day of each individual life, the basic sin behind all particular sins. At this very moment, you and I are either committing it or about to commit it or repenting it. We try when we wake to lay the new day at God's feet. Right? That's the right thing to do, to keep those two things together. But before we have finished shaving, or whatever it is, dressing, whatever you might say, it becomes our day. And God's share in it is felt as a tribute, which we must pay out of our own pocket, a deduction from the time which ought we feel to be our own. You see what he's saying there in such a poetic way, is that before we even finish shaving, the day is my day. You see? Out. God, this is my day. Oh, yes, I'm a religious person. That's right. And as a good member of Covenant United Reformed Church in Kalamazoo, I should, give, I should give God his due. So I'll say a prayer because that's, after all, sort of the tribute or the tax that I owe to God. You see how now it's my day and I'm giving God just a little bit of what he's due from my day. Again, I, I hope you can see, my friends, how, how when those two things come apart, our, our, our knowing God, our being in covenant with God, when those two things come apart, my skills and my abilities then become a matter for pride. At any rate, I want to make this thesis to you, this point, and that is that humility brings strength. Humility brings strength. That's the thesis. Humility makes us stronger. We're told on, on so many uh, uh, occasions, especially as parents, right, that we want to build in our children and to instill within them this sense of strength and confidence, that they could live confidently, that they could step out boldly in society, take their place and, and, and not be you know, so reserved and so uh, timid, right, that they can't step out boldly and, and make a difference in the world. How do you find that strength? And young people, especially, I think that you can listen and hear me this evening, or this morning, it's for everybody, but especially for you, how do you find that strength? Now, my thesis, the point that I want to make to you as we close this sermon is humility gives you that confidence and that strength. Now, that's counterintuitive, isn't it? You wouldn't think that being humble would make you a stronger, more confident person. And yet, my friends, that's exactly the truth. It's humility that gives us this confidence and that strength to live. Let me try to walk you through that. Suppose that you have have two people here. Right? Imagine with me two people here. Here you have a person who's grown up. He's a young person, perhaps, a male, a female, but whatever it is, he, I'll just say he for now, has grown up, he is in covenant with God. And he sees his worth and his value as a person in the fact that he knows God, that he is in covenant with God. That's the name of our church, isn't it? Covenant United Reformed Church. We glory in the covenant, and that's certainly appropriate. This person finds his worth in the fact that he's connected by that covenant relationship to God Almighty. Now over here you have another person, right? You have another person who says, well, I'm valuable because of some skill that he has. You could think of it as how fast he can run, how much he can lift. If he's an older person, how successful, how wealthy his business, how prosperous his business has been. If she's a female, 
right? Her looks, her fashion, her, her status in society. Boy or girl, it can be, I have this relationship, I have a girlfriend, I have a boyfriend. They find their worth and value as a person in that fact, some skill, some accomplishment or achievement that they have. Now think about this, my friends. Let's just take as an example that this person uh, over here is, I have to choose an example, is the fastest person in the school. Their value as a person is because they can run faster than anyone else in the school. You follow me, young people, with this now? Now this person likes to run too. They like to run races. And they run a race. Okay, there's a dozen people here. They all run. And now imagine that both these people lose. Both these people lose the race. Now, on the one side, you have this person here who's disappointed that he lost. That's appropriate, right? He's disappointed that he lost. This person over here is wrecked. He is devastated because he lost. Why? Because this person has, has built his whole value as a person upon that fact of how fast he can run. And again, you fill in the blank here, whatever it may be, my friends, how much he can lift, or his grades in school, or, or whatever it may be, you fill in the blank. They're both disappointed, you understand that, right? But because this person built all his value and worth as a person, all his pride, you might say, is based on this achievement or accomplishment that he has, when it's taken away from him, he goes all to pieces. This person wakes up the next morning and says, you know what, i got to try that again. I lost that race And I feel like I could do better. Again, why? Because his worth as a person is not based on the fact of how fast he can run. Yes, he loves to run races. Or yes, he values his grades highly. Or or whatever, again, you fill in the blank, whatever it may be. But it's not at the center of his life. You see, he hasn't built the whole foundation. His whole house, you might say, isn't built on the foundation of his one skill or achievement that he has. Now here's the question. And remember, my thesis is humility makes us stronger. Which of those two people, my friends, and especially my young people this evening, this morning, which of those two people is the stronger? Which of those two people is the stronger? Maybe if I flipped the, the situation, right, and said uh, uh, that this is a female, maybe I could speak more to the, to the young women who base all their worth and value as a person on their looks or their body image, or their beauty, whatever it may be. And then for whatever reason, God takes that away from you. You see, if you've built the whole, if you've built your whole life centered on that one thing, if it's taken away from you, your whole life is wrecked. And people, people fall down in despair. And, and, they, and they go to, you know, they, they, they go home and just lay on the couch, Right? And despondent. Now, I, we should have pity for such people. I, I'm not saying that, right? I'm not mocking them or anyway, right? But it's just the fact of life. Whereas this person over here certainly believes in taking care of his body. Uh, I'm speaking now to a girl. So taking care of her, her body, right? And, uh, and, having a, um, and being healthy, right? And if, if this girl over here needs to lose 20 pounds, she can do that. Because her whole life is not centered on the fact of her looks, or whatever else it may be. Her life is lived in covenant with God. 
And she finds her worth and value as a person in God Almighty and in the fact that she's in covenant with him. What an incredible, breathtaking privilege that is. My friends, I ask you to remember two weeks ago when we talked about the communion of the saints, that glorious communion of people, and that I am a member of that community. Now that's my value. That's why I'm valuable as a person. Now again, I ask you, which of those two people, which of those two girls is the stronger? It, it, it's, it's obvious, isn't it? Well, you might say, well, but, but you know, I'm, I wish I was a faster runner. I, I wish I was more beautiful. I wish I was skinnier. I wish I was stronger. I wish, I wish I was more successful. I mean, I go to school, and there's all these other people, and they're all better at me than everything. I can't even get a good grade in, in library class, you know, and, and, and whatever else you might think, and, and, you're, and you're so disappointed. Well, think about that, my friends. That's only a problem if your whole value and worth as a person is based on those things. If your value and worth as a person is not based on those things, then first of all, you can find strength and confidence in the fact that you know God and are in covenant with Him, and now you can turn around to work on those things. And if you fail, you fail. You get back up and you try again. Why? Because your whole house doesn't fall over into a pile of ruins, right? When you, when you fail at those things, because your house isn't built on those things. Your house is built on the foundation of, I am in covenant with God. And that's where I find the strength for living. Now I can go to work on my grades, or my strength, or my speed, or whatever it may be. My friends, this is the truth then that I, that I want to that I want to pound home this evening. I keep saying this evening. I don't know why. This morning. This morning. This is the truth that you have to learn. That that kind of humility gives us strength. You know what that means, young women in our midst? Young men? That means you can come up in front of the church here and you can unload all your anxieties, all your fears, all your concerns, you can just unload them right here in the front of church and leave them behind and never talk to them, never see them, and never face them again. You can just be done with it. Because you are in covenant with God. Now I have to say, my friends, this assumes you are in covenant with God. If you're not a believer, you've got much worse problems. You know that. But now I'm speaking to those who are in covenant with God. Whether you're a young person or whether you're an old person. Now you can find not just strength and confidence in life, my friends, you can find joy and happiness. You can participate, you know, and, and sports uh, are really, in, in one sense, such a good way to learn this, right? Because what happens in sports, dear, dear young people, we all lose, don't we? Right? We all lose. None of us are as good as we would like to be. But you see, my friends, those people who are in covenant with God, who have this kind of humility, can just take all that fear of failure, all that fear of rejection, Maybe your, maybe your value and worth as a person is built on the fact that you have this girlfriend or you have this boyfriend. And then what happens when that relationship breaks, my dear friend? Then what do you do? Well, my worth as a person is found in the fact that I am in covenant with God. I have a relationship with him. And so, yes, I'm very disappointed that this relationship broke. But I'm not wrecked as a person. I'm not completely destroyed. I wish my friends, my dear young friends especially, but we older ones have to learn this lesson too, don't we? 
that we could take all that anxiety, all that fear, and just lay it right here. Didn't we already read that? Didn't we already read that when we had our, the, the verse I read after we read the law? It says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And then what does it say? I wonder if anybody can remember. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Oh, my dear friends, what a happy day it would be if we would learn this lesson of humility. The world tells you, the world is constantly screaming at you that to be humble is to be weak. Remember we we talked about meekness a while back? To be humble is to be weak, and the exact opposite is the case. Think how much happier your life would be if you could just let go of that anxiety about how I look or how I perform or my grades or this, that, and the next thing. If you all could just cast that anxiety upon God this morning and walk out of this church saying, you know, I'm in covenant with the creator of the universe. What else matters? What else matters? Who cares? And I shouldn't say who cares, because that's not the right attitude either. In one sense, I feel like you can care more. You understand what I'm saying? You can care more. You you, you can be even, you can give yourself even more diligently to trying to improve your algebra score, or to run your 50-yard dash even faster, or to lose weight, or to whatever it is you may have to do. Because again, it's not at the center of your life. It's not at the foundation of your house. Parents, how critical it is that we teach our children this lesson. Bend your every effort to teach your children that their worth as a person is not dependent upon anything that they do or perform or some metric. You see, we push our children and we end up communicating to them not explicitly, of course, we know better than to say this, but we communicate them by the, the standards that we hold them to and how hard we push them. That your worth as a person is based on your rankings in the soccer league. These things ought not so to be, my friends. And again, I'll, I'll say it. I believe that when we teach our children this lesson, that their worth as a person is not based on their achievements, that it puts them in a position to try even harder, to, to be even more committed. Because no longer is it at the center of their life. I think they can be a better athlete, a better student. When you let go of the anxiety that, that, that just tears at our young people because they're not achieving. The two verses of scripture that I want to bring to your attention, my friends, teach these lessons so clearly. I ask you parents... When last have you had this conversation with your child? You know what's a great opportunity for having this conversation? When this font right here is opened. And when we say over our children, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's a great opportunity for this conversation. You are in covenant with God. And that's your worth and value as a person today. Jeremiah 9 and verse 23 Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. 
Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. I don't have to add anything to that, do I? That is so clear. And then in Philippians, Paul is speaking about the things that he boasts in. In Philippians 3 and verse 3, he says, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God, and glory, or we boast in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on and talks about all the different things that he could have had confidence on. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Pharisees. I was a member of the Pharisees. I was zealous. I was a persecutor of the church. But whatever things were gained to me. And what are those things for you this morning, my friends? What are those things for you? You fill in the blank. Whatever things were gained to me, whatever things I relied upon, whatever things I looked to that make me valuable as a person, Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. What a beautiful reality, my friends, and what a beautiful reality to raise our dear young people with that understanding, that knowing God Being in covenant with God is something of unspeakable value, whatever else might be true or not true in your life. May God give us grace then to communicate these things to our dear children. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you having sat at the feet of Herod this this morning, as it were, and seen him in his shimmering silver garment, his royal robe, and yet the devastating reality, he gave not glory to God. And because of that, he was dragged off the the, the stage, assisted off the stage as a picture, as an illustration, example for us, that you will not give your glory to another. Lord, help us to see that lesson. And help especially, Lord, our young people this this morning to recognize this incredible truth that we can find so much strength and confidence and joy in life when we are humble. And when we lean on our covenant with you as the real center and foundation of our life. And then we can take loss, we can take failure, we can take success and victory. We can take it all humbly, giving you the thanks and giving you the glory. And not like Herod, who did not give you the glory, but we can give you the glory. Lord, help us to learn that lesson, help our young children to learn it. And may we all as a church be truly a covenant, united, reformed church glorying in the fact that we know Jesus Christ and putting no confidence in the flesh. All this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's turn to number 354. This beautiful hymn, Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross.
Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, and unto him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus unto all generations, forever and ever. Amen.